Thank you, Pastor Harry. We are blessed as a university to have a campus pastor like him. I don't think many of you realize the vast experience and pastoral ministry that he brings to us, but it is vast and it is deep. And for those of you that have an opportunity to take advantage of that and get to know that man, you will be blessed. Well, it's a joy to be here. We have a lot to do in a short amount of time. And we are starting off this particular chapel service dealing with an issue that pervades our culture today called transgender confusion. Biblical insights into the self-defining self. If you want to take notes on this, I guarantee you'll probably end up using them at some particular point in the near future with somebody that you're talking to, but you'll see why as we get into our material why this is so critical for us as Christians to not only to be able to think well about this issue, but also to be able to interact with the world around us. There is no doubt that concerning the fact that an identity crisis really is occurring in our culture today, there are a lot of people who are confused concerning these changes, especially people who are serious-minded Christians. Now make no mistake about it, this is not a sociological problem, it's a doctrinal problem, and it will continue to become more sophisticated and technical as the decades go along ahead. This is not an issue that will have a short theological shelf life. It's something that will continue to affect the Church of Jesus Christ for a long time, long after I'm gone and you're still around, you're still going to be facing this particular issue until our Lord returns. But passionate and personal issues of doctrinal conflict is not anything new to church history. Throughout church history, problems like this have taken decades, sometimes even centuries, to find lasting resolution to. It may seem to some of you that civilization itself is crumbling before our very eyes. I mean, 30 years ago, no one ever would have heard of the LGBTQIA, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, intersex, allies, or asexual community. Nobody would have ever heard of that. Now it's a part of our everyday discussions, and it will be a part of your personal life, whatever ministry, whatever church you end up going to, for decades going forward. Right now, you are experiencing only the proverbial tip of the iceberg. There is much more to come. And this has happened because of a major paradigm shift that has occurred in the thinking and the philosophical framework of our culture. Some of you are young enough, you don't realize that paradigm shift because you were born in the middle of it, but it has happened. The self-defining self rules the thinking of the X generation, post-baby boomers, the Y gen, which is the millennials, and Gen C, Z, which are the groups born since, just before the start of the millennium. Self-identity was something that used to be something was fixed. For most people, Christian, agnostic, atheist alike, self was defined by your biological DNA at conception, but that is no longer true. Much of this shift has been due to the influence of Eastern religions on our thinking 
and secular approaches of sociological and psychological theories that have given rise to what I like to refer to as the modern self. It comes from theories of self-actualization and self-realization popularized by secular psychotherapists like Carl Gustav Jung, Eric Erickson, Donald Windicott, Abraham Maslow, major men who have influenced our thinking and our culture now. Jung developed the notion of individualation, that lifelong process in which the center of the psychological life shifts from the ego to the self. Erickson described human development through the lifespan in, this theory, in his theory of psychosocial development. Donald Windicott developed the notion of the true self and the false self. He thought that people were born without a clearly developed self and had to search for an authentic sense of self as they grew. Abraham Maslow developed the hierarchy of needs, which culminated in the idea of self-actualization. For him, it was impossible for a person to fully experience all of who they are until his or her needs were met. And all these theorists and more have contributed to this major philosophical shift that has occurred in our culture. The self-defining self is a substantial epistemological change. These psychoanalysts have brought about a philosophical revolution in our culture. It is now, listen to this, a moral responsibility to be true to oneself. And actually, you can see the seeds of that thinking as early as in Rene Descartes, um, translated from the Latin, I think, therefore I am. But Descartes was really wrong. He was before he thought. The idea that I must be true to myself is now a moral imperative. You can even see it in decent young men and women attending Christian universities and churches today. They feel that this is a real heavy responsibility, that is to be in touch with themselves, to be true to whatever impressions or inclinations that seem to be prominent in them at that particular time. With previous generations, that was not so. They believed in the moral imperative of being true to truth external to self. That's a major philosophical shift. Today, self determines what is true. It is the theory of social construction of reality. As one well-known psychologist said, I believe in the social construction of reality. Social constructionism essentially says that you and I create our own reality through the different models of language that we use. Gender and sexual orientation is socially constructed, not fixed. So now, public schools are using gender-neutral terminology. It's considered patriarchal, oppressive, an imposition for medical doctors delivering babies now to refer to them as boy or girl, he or she, until they grow older and they can self-define, self-identify. Now, how do you help a person living by the notion that their highest good is to be true to self. That's their, their highest moral responsibility. 
what steps do you need to take in order to help that individual think, desire, behave within God-given parameters of gender and sexual orientation? It's interesting, in 2012, five years ago, a Senate bill was filed and passed in the California State Legislature concerning medical and professional counselors helping a person under the age of 18 with sexual orientation is now illegal. In fact, here in the state of California, Senate Bill 1172 um, basically established that existing law provides for licensing and regulation of various professions in the helping arts, including physicians and surgeons, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, educational psychologists, clinical social workers, and licensed professional clinical counselors. This particular bill prohibits a mental health provider, as defined, from engaging in sexual orientation change efforts as defined with a patient under 18 years of age. The bill would provide that any sexual orientation change efforts attempted on a patient under 18 years of age by a mental health provider shall be considered unprofessional conduct and shall be subject, subject the provider to discipline by the provider's licensing agency. In fact, any licensed therapist who attempts to change a young person under the age of 18 in terms of gender identity or sexual orientation, regardless of whether the young person is requesting the change or not, is liable for a fine, for imprisonment, and loss of license. This puts the quote-unquote Christian psychologist in a horrible dilemma. Do I disobey the state law or God's law? There's no doubt that a form of this law will soon be in every state in the Union and in countries around the world, but at this time, pastoral and biblical counselors are exempt from this law. You can still counsel a person under the age of 18 for help in gender identity and sexual orientation as long as you are not state licensed, and so far you are protected from obeying that law, a law that was written by those who fully endorse the social construction of reality theory. So the big question then is, is there any hope for people who feel sexually trapped or even maybe we could say sexually confused? Is there any hope that provides lasting and substantial help? Well, I want you to understand with God there is always hope. Struggles with sexual orientation and gender identity is not anything new to Christians. If you have your Bible in front of you, take it and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and follow along as I read. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I want you to understand the tense that's being used here are of people who continually practice these things, not a person who have just once or twice done these things but they are continual practicers. That's the idea. So, well, let's begin in verse 9 again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And here's the hope. Look at verse 11 carefully. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, what they used to be, their very natures had changed at, because of the gospel. The gospel had changed them. That's really critical. So you cannot, you've got to understand that all counseling is pre-counseling until that person comes to Christ. You cannot counsel an unbeliever with the Bible. It's an impossibility. What are you going to do with an unbeliever? Uh, you maybe you could get them. I mean, if they view the Bible as essentially a set of suggestions uh, at, at best, but um, for the most part, an unbeliever, if they want to obey the Bible, can only do it externally. They can never really do it from the heart. So if you get an unbeliever to obey what the Bible says, essentially, what have you done? You've created a really good Pharisee. For the Christian. The Bible is God's marching orders. For the Christian, uh, when the Bible is read, they hear the voice of God there. It is their authority. For the unbeliever, that's not true. You cannot counsel an unbeliever. The Bible says the only thing that you can do is evangelize them. That's what needs to be done. Well, real and lasting change will only come in the believer's life. And let me share with you Several points here that I think will be a help to you in dealing with this. I have seven of them. The first one is this. The Christian's ultimate goal is not to convince a person to accept heterosexuality or biological gender identity, but it is to help them know Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's critical. We have to start there. Why? Moralism condemns. It is biblical grace that brings a nature change it is biblical grace that brings genuine forgiveness it is a false gospel that advocates a christianized form of moralism because it reduces christian truth to improvements in behavior as a christian it's not your purpose to try to straighten out another person's bad behavior so that they behave and they function as a heterosexual or according to their biological birth identity biblical counselors don't practice any type of conversion or reparative therapy that is used with homosexuals neither do they practice techniques of behavioral therapy that is often used with transgenders such approaches reduces Scripture to a rule book. Instead, they seek to help confused men and women understand justification by faith. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul rejects moralism by insisting, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. When the Christian sins, they misrepresent the gospel and it's not simply a matter of behavioral adjustments in order to make it right either. Changing the external behavior of a person who claims to be transgender or lesbian or gay is pointless because the real problem is not the body, the real problem is the heart. 
That is why the Apostle Paul writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now where moralism may help sinners behave better, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that genuinely transforms people's lives. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, intersex, into adopted children of God. The transgender says, my body is the wrong gender. Christianity says, my view of my gender identity is bad thinking. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Moralism is not the answer to the problem. A radical, redemptive change must take place in that person's heart. There's a second thing. The second thing is this. The body is not the prison of the soul, so that your goal becomes escape the body. There was a Hellenistic view in the first and second century known as Gnosticism, and one of the most notable forms of Gnosticism was Docetism. The Docetists believed that physical world was full of imperfections, innately sinful, but the spiritual world, on the other hand, of the inner soul was perfect and sinless. They would trust their inner soul and its inclinations because it was always good. Therefore, the quote-unquote Christian docetists taught that Jesus Christ could never have come in the flesh because he would have come in a sinful form. He only seemed to have come in the flesh. But if this is true, then it negated the gospel because if Jesus came only in spiritual form without any real human body, then he was merely a phantom. Therefore, he did not really suffer in the flesh or die a physical death, nor was he resurrected in physical form from the dead. Such a denial of Christ's body destroys the claims of the gospel and makes Christianity absolutely meaningless and worthless. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. 2 John, verse 7. This is something the Apostle John recognized as a very dangerous philosophy that was counter to what the Scripture taught about Christ and created reality. However, many early Christians were influenced by this thinking, and they believed that the created world was essentially evil, including their own bodies, and their goal then was to escape the body and become what they believed was the more perfect inner man. Now, transgenderism is not docetism, but much of the philosophy is very similar. The outer body is wrong, and the inner person's view of themselves is the greater reality. To the transgender, salvation is liberating the soul from the prison of their male or female body through sex reassignment surgery, hormonal therapy, and escaping its vile limitations by becoming physiologically external, the person of the opposite sex. Now, this is not the way serious Christian thinks. It's more in line with Eastern religions. 
The goal of Buddhism is liberation from the cycles of aimless drifting in this mundane world. Jainism seeks to escape the cycle of rebirth and death through moralistic behavior. But the Christian does not view the physical world or their body as evil or something to be escaped. In fact, on each day of creation, God saw what he had created and he called it good, not evil. The psalmist says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 104, verse 24. The wisdom of God is reflected also in the way that God created the human body. Later, the psalmist says about God, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 119, 68. Then five verses later, after stressing the goodness of and, and all that God does, in Psalm 119, verse 73, he says, Your hands made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Now, it's important for you, as a conscientious and caring Christian, to get your friend to meditate upon 1 Timothy 4, 4. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's a third thing. You must help them reject the ungodly notion that the highest good of life is driven by the moral imperative to be true to oneself. This moral imperative was radically divergent from previous generations. I want you to hear me on this. Previous generations have lived by the ideal do your duty. This is no longer the ideal in today's generation. In generation Z, they have no concept of that. Do your duty. Instead, it is express your true self. Such an ideal belies a trust in self as a reliable guide to truth and happiness. To be true to yourself, you are acting in accordance with who you are, it is said, it is seen as the essence of being genuine to deny your feelings and your personal impressions and to live by an external standard to oneself is viewed as disingenuous. Such insincerity is not tolerated in the transgender, homosexual, bisexual world. According to them, if you have courage to accept who you think you are, regardless of your gender-specific hormones, you will never be true to yourself. And if you cannot be true to yourself, then you'll never be true to anyone else. Now, on the surface, that actually seems reasonable. But it's full of falsehoods and misleading assumptions. Such ideas are not just false. They're really anti-Christian. They're based on two horrible misconceptions. The first one is the fact that self can be trusted. That's a huge, huge assumption. The second one is that you cannot trust anything outside of yourself. That's a problem as well. In order to trust self, you must believe that self is essentially trustworthy or good, while the Bible teaches that self is untrustworthy, essentially evil in its thoughts and desires. Genesis 6, 5, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 36, 1 through 12, and on and on and on. This is still true after a person becomes a Christian. All personal thoughts and desires are still subject to the critique of God's Word. Now take your Bible for a moment. 
Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, and I want you to look at this very carefully. 1 Corinthians 4, we're interested in verse 4. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now you understand here that the, even the Apostle Paul reveals his mistrust in his own thinking. He says, when I survey my own conscience, when I survey my own feelings, I'm not guilty of anything that I've done wrong towards you as Corinthian believers. But just because I don't have that in my conscience and my own personal feelings doesn't mean that I'm not guilty because the ultimate judge is not in me the ultimate judge is external to me. The ultimate judge is the Lord himself. He is the final judge. Just because I don't feel bad about it doesn't mean I'm not wrong. I could be wrong. It's the Lord who judges me or it's the Lord who ultimately acquits me. One of the two. He didn't even trust his own conscience. The Apostle John includes himself in this declaration and confirms the fact that sinful thoughts, motivations, and actions are a factor for the believer. 1 John 1.8, if we, John includes himself, say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the Apostle John includes himself. Self cannot be trusted. Self is not something to be loved or esteemed. In fact, Jesus taught that self must be treated Listen to this. As a horrible criminal. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, denying yourself is much more than just giving up gum for lint. All right? Denying self means literally take up the cross. That's where they hung infamous criminals. Self has to be hung on the cross every single day, Jesus said. We can't trust self. Wow. Your friend must be true to Christ, not self. That's external to them. There's a fourth thing. The fourth thing is this. You must help them reject the cultural assumption of the self-defining self and learn to be grateful for the way that God has created their body. Such an epistemological approach is a form of extreme egocentrism. It's called solipsism. And it means that self is the only true and reliable existent thing. That's solipsism. It says that my mental states are the only states that really exist. I alone determine my own reality by the rhetoric that I use and the way that I view self. It involves a preoccupation with personal feelings, personal desires, personal thoughts. Solipsism is a word that comes from the Latin solus, alone, combined with the verb form ipsi, self, to be self. Um, so solipsism was really an extreme form of self-absorption that enables a person to define their own reality. A person, like a homosexual, can live within that reality for an extended period of time until they believe that real change is impossible. 
They may think that they can stop practicing homosexuality, homosexuality externally and live as a Christian while still harboring, harboring deep desires within. And Jesus was very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, external behavior is mere moralism. It is a transformed heart in the inner man that's really what is needed. The inner desire can and must change. When they believe that they can de determine their own external reality, they become their own God. During the time of the judges, Scripture says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have a whole culture and society around the world in this present generation that is just like that culture in the days of the judges. There is no God to answer to in the mind of the solipsis except for the God of self. The cry of the emergent LGBTQIA is self alone. Solus Ipsi, but the cry of the Protestant Reformation that we actually celebrate this week, 500 years, is faith alone, sola fide, scripture alone, sola scriptura, Christ alone, solus Christus, grace alone, sola gratia, and glory to God alone, sola dea gloria. For the Christian who struggles with these sinful propensities, they must see their, their solipsis thoughts as counter-reformational. And even though the world loves to speak of being free to be true to oneself, the Bible says that following self is the worst type of bondage and enslavement. Solipsism is a miserable myth. For example, transgenders are subject to a much higher rate of depression and suicide than the average population. 40% of transgenders, 40% attempt suicide compared to 2 to 3% in the general population. Self is a very deceptive slave master. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19. 2 Peter 2 really is a descriptive analysis of how false teachers entice by sensual passions of the flesh they teach people to follow the passions of the flesh, whatever feels right to them, rather than following the truth, but in doing so, they actually put people into captivity to their own desires. Uh, this can especially be true of those who claim to be Christians, but then return to following their fleshly passions. They demonstrate they had a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but were not really true believers. When the true what the true proverb says has happened. The dog returns to its vomit and the, and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mud. Now why does a dog return to eat its vomit or the sow to the mud? Because their essential natures really have never changed. You can, when a person is, is genuinely saved, their essential nature has fundamentally changed and they will not return or remain wallowing in the ways of the world. You can take a pig and wash a pig and perfume a pig and put a red bow around that pig and the moment you let that pig go, that pig's going to find the nearest mud puddle and jump right back in because his essential nature has never changed inside. That's the way with people who try to pretend to be Christian externally by certain behavior, but their hearts have never really changed. Their natures have never changed because the gospel has not touched their heart. Following the LGBT solipsism elevates personal sin, 
feelings, self-perception, and desires over the Creator's view of reality. Let's take a, a transgender female, for example. Discontentment and ungratefulness are critical factors that contribute to her transgender personal anguish. It begins with discontentment, wishing to be another gender. It leads to a settled ungratefulness, an overall miserable and depressing outlook on life. She says to herself repeatedly during the day, I hate my body. That's a disturbing thought, but it's replayed a thousand times in her mind. And this thought is not something that came from a poor opinion of self. This is not a lack of self-love. It actually came from a high view of self that caused her to have a low view of one aspect of her life, that is her body. She believed that she needed a better body, a masculine body. The fact that she believed she needed a better body came from the assumption that she deserved a better body. This reveals an intense love of self, not a diminished view of self. She loved herself, not her body. Jesus warned this would be the great struggle of man when he reviewed the great commandment in God's law. Man would be prone to love self. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It is the love for God that should draw out a woman's full affections and passions. But then Jesus continues by saying, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself does not mean you need to love self. If Jesus was saying that people needed to love God, their neighbor, and themselves, he would make that into three commandments. But verse 40 says, makes it very clear that Jesus is only speaking of two commandments, not three. On these two commandments depend the whole law, that is, loving God and loving other people. On those two pegs, the entire Old Testament law hangs. Everything goes back to that. We talk about that in our graduate program. Every counseling problem that you ever encounter will go back to how much that person loves God and how much that person loves other people more than the human tendency to love self and love their own view of self. Wow. That brings us to number five. There's a fifth thing here. You must help them be fully committed to the truth that their given biological gender identity and heterosexual orientation glorifies God. Homosexuality, bisexualism, transgenderism denies the goodness of God's creation. Even though God-created categories are both valid and good, in other words, God doesn't create junk. And He does not make mistakes. Romans 3, 4. Again, Scripture says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4, 4. Well, I mentioned Psalm 119, 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And here, the psalmist speaks of God's personal act of creation. Your hands made me. In the Hebrew, he's speaking in the past tense there of God's personal act of creating a person from conception. But after this, that initial creation, the writer, the psalmist says that God was not finished. And then it says, your hands fashioned me. Now, here's a different Hebrew tense. It's the imperfect, meaning that God continues to fashion that person. In other words, God is not finished 
with the person that you work with or you're trying to witness to, but he continues to use a variety of circumstances in their life to mold them into the image of Jesus Christ, and after creating them, his continuing work in his life is seen in saving him. So after saving him, then his continuing work in life is seen then in sanctifying him. So in fact, God has saved him, sanctified him for good. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10, God's purposes go way beyond just having you be content with your gender identity or sexual orientation. He desires for you to be an asset for His goodness and His glory. Number six. There's a sixth thing that I think is important here. Binary gender distinctive, distinctiveness models an even greater spiritual reality that must not be lost with the culture of the self-defining self. There is intentionality in the design of God within creation. A binary genderism is embedded within the very nature of creation in mankind. Man was created male and female, and not until both were created did God call what he had created not just good, but very good. As a fact that has been obscured by sexual redefinitions of a generation of gender Z, gender Y, or generation Z or generation Y. <laughs> so God created Adam, masculine on a chromosomal level, XY, and with full male anatomy. He created Eve, feminine on a chromosomal level, XX, and with external female anatomy. Only one in 1,500 to 2,000 births are intersex or are born with um, different genitalia or two different types of genitalia. And then, even then, on a chromosomal level, they can tell whether or not that particular intersex person is a male or female. So this binary design actually serves greater purposes in God's cosmic plan than merely providing for human marriage and procre procreation. God's binary gender design is simple, it's strong, and it's very, very clear. Non-binary gender speculation is very confusing, debilitating, and misleading. This is true especially for the bisexual, queer, intersex, and asexual person. In essence, God's uncomplicated binary design is intended to bring more complex and elusive spiritual realities into greater clarity. This is best seen in God's relationship to His people. The depth of love and intimacy that God enjoys with His people is best illustrated in the male-female relationship in marriage. There's no greater level of intimacy enjoyed on a human level than that of a husband and wife. They were originally created as gender complements, a male and female, in covenant relationship of marriage. God's close intimacy with His people then is more fully understood because of the male-female bond in marriage. 
Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, God says to Israel, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For God's love for his people is more clearly understand because of the binary relationship of the genders. Even God's grief and anger is better understood when Israel's failure to be faithful to her divine husband is revealed through the relationship that the prophet Hosea has with his adulterous wife, Gomer. In Hosea chapters 1 through 4, later in the New Testament, the male-female analogy is furthered with the church's relationship to Jesus Christ, her bridegroom, um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and he himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. Then later in the same chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul states, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and become two, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery that is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. God uses the distinctiveness of male-female genders as a means of reflecting the vital nature of His close relationship with His people. Revelations 19.9 If the binary nature of the two genders were ever confused or obliterated by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual ideologies, then man will lose a critical experiential point of reference to God. Last of all, number seven. When you fail to follow God's truth, it results in incalculable human suffering and personal misery. In counseling, I have seen this over and over and over again. Only a counter-Christian worldview would superimpose upon Generation Z a confusing and judgmental non-binary sexual cosmology. Confusing because gender identity and sexual orientation is subject to the vacillating impressions of human feelings and emotions. Judgmental because anyone who refuses to accept the normal uh, normality of the LBGTQIA community is labeled a narrow-minded bigot. But there is always a price to pay when people decide to rebel against God-created limits. The result is incalculable suffering and pain, and we don't want that as Christians for people. Listen to the testimony of a 56-year-old man who had undergone sexual reassignment surgery to become a woman. Listen to what he says, quoting him. I knew I wasn't a, a real woman, no matter what my identification document said. I had taken extreme steps to resolve my gender conflict by changing genders, but changing genders had not worked. It was obviously a masquerade. I felt I had been lied to. How in the world had I, had I reached this? How did I become a fake woman? You know, 100 years from now, they dig up his bones. They'll, they can tell just from his bones whether or not he was a man or a woman. 100 years from now, they can't change that. Nobody can change their, their bone, bone structure. No matter how much external rearrangement you can do, 
in terms of your gender, you can't change who you are. So, he, he was a fake woman, and he knew it. This man was in such desperation and despair. Eventually, he surrendered to alcohol abuse, contemplated suicide until he became whole again as a man. This is a growing awful legacy of other tragic testimonies describing the personal havoc and heartache and awful miserable misery that this approach has caused in the lives of so many people and is continuing to wreak havoc around the world. I just read an article yesterday, major university in England. Researcher wanted to research the side effects of sex reassignment surgery, but the university denied the research grant because it wasn't politically correct. Wow. There's a whole agenda out there. But you as a thinking Christian have answers in Christ that will prevent and relieve their misery. It's not reparative or corrective therapy. It is the gospel. You're not going to turn people into heterosexuals or merely learning to ex helping them to learn how to accept their biological identity. We're looking to present them Christ. Scripture warrants believers that those who willingly practice ungodliness will reap what they sow. Proverbs 22, 8, Galatians 6, 7, Hosea chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. There are eventually miserable consequences to open rebellion against God. However, the reverse is also true. When a person who is plagued with notions and feelings decides to follow the path of righteousness that is external to them, the way that God has created them, external to their feelings, then it can be said, good will come. Solomon says in Proverbs 13, 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Well, there are seven things we've helped to identify about transgender confusion. Number one, the Christian's ultimate goal is not to convince a person to accept heterosexuality or biological gender identity, but it's to help them know Jesus Christ and his gospel. Number two, the body is not the prison of the soul so that your goal becomes escape the body. Number three, you must help them reject the ungodly notion that the highest good of life is driven by the moral imperative to be true to oneself. Number four, you must help them to reject the cultural presupposition of the self-defining self and learn to be grateful for the way that God has created their body. Number five, you must help them to be fully committed to the truth that they're given biological gender identity and heterosexual orientation glorifies God. Number six, binary gender distinctiveness models an even greater spiritual reality that must not be lost with the culture of the self-defining self. And number seven, when you fail to follow God's truth, it results in incalculable human suffering and personal misery. We don't want that. We'll talk about the positive side on Wednesday. Will you stand with me? Gracious Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your grace. We're grateful for the clarity of the Word of God. We live in a culture that is clearly not just apathetic towards Christians. They are opposed to Christians and Christians' thought, and they're becoming more militant against Christian thought. Help us to be beacons of light 
in the midst of this society, raise up a generation of leaders here at the Master's University to go forth and take the gospel to this generation without apology, without shame, but in boldness. Fill each of them with your spirit, we pray in Christ's name.